Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I'm going to read an old paper I did in my undergraduate days. The title of that paper is Clarity from Conflict, James Davenport and the Great Awakening. It pertains to colonial history of the United States during one of the Great Awakenings, the period that took place before the Revolution, when itinerant preachers would travel around the colonies and have open-air um, revivals regarding whatever Christian teaching they had uh, James Davenport is kind of lost to history his uh, extreme kind of hysteria that he promoted or promulgated was not something that was uh, memorialized or remember uh, really was an important historical figure like Jonathan Edwards uh, who wrote the well-known uh, sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon among other sermons during this period but I do believe that all of these notable figures in the Great Awakening were aware of James Davenport and his teachings and really had to kind of clarify their own uh, outlook based upon what he was doing in these colonies. So uh, I'm going to read it. I also have a lot of quotes. So if I do quote, I will just, uh, before I have a quote, I will say quote. So again, clarity from conflict, James Davenport and the Great Awakening. Quote, down from above the blessed dove is come into my breast to witness God's eternal love. This is my heavenly feast. This makes me Abba Father cry with confidence of soul. It makes me cry my Lord, my God, and that without control. James Davenport, Song of Praise. As James Davenport, the zealous itinerant preacher and iconoclast, stood nearby goading the lawn, a large number of the citizens of New London, Connecticut, circled a torrid bonfire and committed their personal belongings to its incinerating flame. The dour, imperious preacher had informed the people that a message he received by a spirit while in a dream told him of the idolatry inherent in their love of, quote, breeches, hoods, gowns, rings, and necklaces, unquote. Books that were deemed unsafe in the hands of the people were also to be burnt. These articles and books, Davenport pronounced, must be put to flame to rectify the disorders prevailing in the children of God. The belongings were then thrown in, while those involved amid shouts of hallelujah and glory patri were heard to say, quote, as the smoke of the torments of such of the authors of these books as died in the same belief as when they let them out, is now ascending in hell in like manner as they saw the smoke of the books rise, unquote. The following day, after realizing the error of their act, Davenport and his flock began confessing their sins publicly, many loudly pro proclaiming themselves Judases, one believing that he should be hanged up and his bowels would rush out. Although displays of religious enthusiasm were somewhat common in the days of the Great Awakening, the residents of New London and New England saw that this bizarre figure and the turbulence he created as far different from other religious practitioners. They had seen or heard other itinerants who had ventured through the colonies, such as Whitefield, Edwards, and Tennant, and expected a fiery sermon from the pulpit. Davenport was heavily influenced by these preachers, their ideology, style, and rhetoric. But Davenport reevaluated their ideas and brought his version of religious experience into the streets, setting the towns of New England alight with fanaticism. It would be this distension of the Great Awakening ideals, coupled with a fantastical fanaticism, that would mark Davenport as a catalyst for defining the nature of this religious upheaval. Davenport, a native of Connecticut, was influenced by a new influx of religious ideas that became known as the Great Awakening, a group of religious thinkers motivated by an anti-institutional an emotionally fueled religious ideology propounded an experimental approach to religious life full of faith in a miraculous and living God. 
Convinced that their work, a mandate to reach out and spread the gospel to all classes and creeds, was a work of God, they traveled through the colonies to teach people. The itinerants fired the populations to a conviction of their sins using impassioned orations to get the message across. Many of the people in the colonies responded favorably to the teachings of these itinerants. These preachers, such as George Whitefield, Gilbert Tennant, and Jonathan Edwards, were known in the colonies as the major proclaimers of these new ideas, their sermons and public statements having been widely disseminated through the medium of newspapers. The spread of this new ideology encountered opposition from established churches throughout the new states. The entrenched Puritan traditionalists felt they were ordained as the sole liaisons between God and man, creating tension between the new and the old, solidifying into groups we know now as the old and new lights. Davenport disregarded the edifice of traditional dogma and formulated his religious notions outside the accepted boundaries of mainstream ideals. It is innovation based upon and fueled by the new ideology of the new lights was radically different than what any could have expected. One of the main in theological influences upon Davenport came from George Whitfield, the grand itinerant. He was a passionate speaker and had the capacity to hold audiences spellbound. He preached with much, quote, much flame, clearness, and power, unquote, and became known in England for his fiery sermons, which produced fervor in some and animosity in others. In his tours of the eastern seaboard, Whitefield boldly proclaimed his views to a receptive audience, of which Davenport was one. He believed that an individual moved by the Spirit was fit to preach, stating in his journal that, quote, For I am verily persuaded the generality of preachers talk of an unknown, unfelt Christ, and the reason why congregations have been so dead is because dead men preach to them. Oh, that the Lord may quicken and revive them for his own name's sake. For how can dead men beget living children? Unquote. Whitfield also railed against the nature of religion and the ministers in New England, whose lack of spiritual influence misrepresented what he believed was the true nature of Christianity. Whitfield presented to his listeners the necessity of receiving an intimate experience of God, or else they would perish in hell forever. This extreme ideological stance characterized much of his public statements. He thought that, quote, it is a sad symptom of decay that vital religion, when reading sermons, comes fashionable, where extempore preaching did all once almost universally prevail. The Church of England is at a low ebb, and as far as I can tell, had people kept their primitive purity, it would have scarce got footing in New England, unquote. Such attacks stiffened many clergy, to resist his enthusiastic methods and emotionally inspiring messages. Whitfield still found hope amongst the peoples of New England for, quote, they are simple in their worship, less corrupt in their principles, and consequently easier to be brought over to the form of sound words, unquote. Another of the preachers that influenced Davenport was Gilbert Tennant, an itinerant that followed in the footsteps of Whitefield. He was an iconoclast that proposed, proposed an enduring change in the ministry of the New England populace. In his infamous sermon, The Danger of an Unconverted Ministry, called by one historian one of the most severely abusive sermons ever penned, he decried the state of formal religion, comparing the Pharisees of the New Testament to the religious teachers of the colonies. He argued, argued that those who did not have an emotional religious foundation were dangerously complacent in the dead forms of religious expression arguing against those who were, like natural men, not having true love of Christ and the souls of their fellow creatures, hence their discourses are cold and sapless, and as it were, freeze between the lips. Tenet called for repentance and humiliation. Direct personal experience was requisite for meaningful religion. His criticism was even more sharp for the clergy than for the lethargic formalities of current religious 
uh, issuances. He charged that the clergy who opposed revivalists were no more reliable guides than blind men. He indicated that they had received no interreligious change and were unregenerate professionals, unworthy of the allegiance of their churches, likening them to the Pharisees of the New Testament. Quote, the Pharisee teachers, having no experience of a special work of the Holy Ghost upon their own souls, are therefore inc neither inclined to nor fitted for discoursing frequently, clearly, and pathetically upon important subjects. They have not the courage or honesty to thrust the nail of terror into sleeping souls, unquote. Such harsh criticism brought an equal response from the conservatives, exacerbating the cleavage between the old and new forms of colonial Christianity. The last major influence upon the mind of Davenport came from Jonathan Edwards. This minister used a bold, intimidating style to stimulate the audience towards repentance. An example of his browbeating comes from his famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. By repeating the imagery of hellfire and damnation, Edwards brought his audiences into a subservient and fearful mental state, wherein the concomitant call to salvation would be gratefully received. Quote, so it is that natural men are held in the hand of God over the pit of hell. They have deserved the fiery pit and are already sentenced to it, and God is dreadfully provoked. His anger is as great towards them as to those that are actually suffering the executions of the fierceness of his wrath in hell, and they have nothing in the least to, to appease that anger. Neither is God in the least bound by any promise to hold them up one moment. The devil is waiting for them. Hell is gaping for them. The flames gather and flash about them. In short, they have no refuge, nothing to take hold of. All that pre preserves them every moment is the mere arbitrary will and uncovenanted, unobliged forbearance of an incensed God." Unquote. This unceasing repetition of fearful consequences created cries and moans in the Edwardian audiences as the people trembled at his horrific descriptions of awaiting damnation. The rhetorical devices used were very effective in stimulating his audience, but the methods were questionable. Edwards felt that an awareness of impending doom could and should avert the people from a godless life. Although he was a supporter of the Great Awakening, he differed from Tennant and Whitefield in that his sermons were doctrinal and language he used was familiar to Calvinists. It was from these preachers that Davenport derived his understanding of the scriptures, the desire to travel to proclaim the word, and the necessity of its representatives to proclaim the truth boldly. He digested their disdain for the uncontroverted, unconverted ministers, cold and distant sermonizing, and the idea that only certain individuals were authorized to direct and communicate God's word to the people. James Davenport's involvement with religion began in his college years at Yale in New Haven, Connecticut. He was said to have associated with the future itinerants Eleazar Wheelock and Benjamin Pomeroy, with whom he shared their fascination and enthusiasm in Christian doctrines. The grandson of the colony's founder, John Davenport, James showed his intellectual talents early, graduating from the school at the age of 16 in 1732. His prestigious lineage and the accolades given for being a prodigy were good signs for a promising future. After graduation, he engaged in the theological studies for two years and was licensed to preach in 1735 by the Fairfield West Association of Ministers. He spent time preaching in New Jersey before accepting a call from the first church in South Hold, Long Island. This was the beginning of the religious upheaval and Davenport was eager to follow in the footsteps of its famous and captivating leaders. 
His zeal for the work of saving souls was noted at Southold when he assembled the parishioners of the city and spoke to them for 24 straight hours, afterwards collapsing for a period of two days. This example of Davenport's zeal indicates he was prone to some nervous intensity in its resulting physical and mental fibrility. While in Southold, he began to divide his flock between the converted and unconverted, terming the laity his brothers and the others his neighbors. He attempted a miracle upon an insane woman in a nearby parish. Davenport prayed and fasted for her return to sanity and declared she would be healed upon a certain date. On that day, she died. Davenport handily interpreted this apparent tragedy as a blessing, believing that God had delivered her of infirmity by receiving the woman into heavenly bliss. Davenport, full of confidence, set out upon his itinerations, travels which would captivate the public and divide sentiment for or against him and the Great Awakening. As religious fervor was sweeping through the colonies, Davenport awaited for his heavenly call to act. This call came in the summer of 1740 when he read a passage from the Bible and came upon an account of Jonathan and his armor-bearer made upon the Philistines. Jonathan had waited to attack until the Philistines invited him to their city. Davenport interpreted this passage to mean that when he was invited, he would go to preach. Soon after, the people of East Hampton invited him to speak, and off he went with a friend representing the armor-bearer of Jonathan. They crawled, as Jonathan, upon their hands and knees into the city of East Hampton, whose citizens overlooked this absurdity, for twenty were then converted. It was after this preliminary journey that Davenport met Woodfield and Tennant, both of whom remarked upon his bearing, quote, To add to my comfort, the Lord brought my dear brother Davenport from Long Island, by whose hands the blessed Jesus has of late done great things, unquote. Another observer recorded that, quote, he never knew one to keep so close a walk with God as Mr. Davenport, unquote. He met his other idol, Gilbert, Gilbert Tennant, who praised him, saying he was, quote, the, of the most heavenly men he had ever been acquainted with, unquote. These statements should be considered in good faith, for this was before the inflammatory actions of Davenport's later years. He began to travel and begin preaching in 1741. He visited the colonial cities of Stonington, Westerly, and Lyme in Connecticut. It was on this tour that the beginning of controversy began, as Davenport condemned the ministers he encountered as unconverted, exhorting their followers to leave them. He was asked to preach in the pulpit by a local minister, but declined, stating that he thought him unconverted. He then encouraged a separation between the true flock and the impure members of these ministries. The local Minister implored him to recant his extreme views, but Davenport would never concede, so the minister refused him the opportunity to preach on the pulpit. Davenport responded to this rejection by stating to his attendants, quote, Come, let us go forth without the camp, after the Lord Jesus, bearing his reproach, or tis pleasant to suffer reproach for the blessed Jesus, sweet Jesus, unquote. The local ministers implored Davenport to recede from his aggressive posture to no avail. Davenport responded to their plea by compromise, for compromise by vehemently declaring them unconverted men, blind guides, and wolves in chief clothing. He then headed off to New Haven, capital of the colony, to bring the population his version of salvation. As he passed through the towns on the way, he called upon ministers, demanding an account of each one's religious experiences, often rushing into their houses to demand immediate evidence of saving grace. 
To any he deemed unfit or unworthy of their office, he readily condemned to hell in full confidence of his special talent to judge their place in the afterworld. By this time, Davenport was convinced of his personal authority as a spokesman for God's will, having the audacity and equanimity to impose it upon others. Arriving in New Haven, his reputation and his ancestry preceding him, he was greeted courteously by Joseph Noyes, the pastor of the prestigious and influential First Church. Mr. Noyes did not know what he was getting into, for as soon as Davenport got onto the pulpit, he declared Noyes a, quote, unconverted minister and a wolf in sheep's clothing, unquote. Davenport went on to say that the people of New Haven were a sheep without a shepherd and demanded that the lady should secede from the First Church. Obviously, this was not received with any approbation by Noyes and his parish. Noyes responded by calling a meeting of his friends, some of whom were principal officers of Yale College. Davenport was then excluded from the pulpit in New Haven and returns to Southhold for the winter. In the next year, in 1742, Davenport, with his old college friend Benjamin Pomeroy, traveled through the parishes of Connecticut, stirring up more controversy. They gathered large numbers of people together, often late at night, preaching to them about the wickedness of their ministers and the gravity of their sins. Complaints were made by citizens of Stratford, the main objections being that Davenport's congregations were mainly young and impressionable to the itinerant's inflammatory doctrines. Davenport and Pomeroy were then arrested in New Haven by the county sheriff and were rapidly brought before the assembly in New Haven on June 1, 1742. At the assembly, Davenport began exhorting his accusers wildly, once again accusing them repeatedly of being unconverted and calling for the converted to resist the entreaties of their parents and the unjust imposition of legal means to impede the progress of the work of God, for they were against the laws of God, said Davenport. A man who was at the trial described him as a, quote, motley mixture of pride and gravity wrought up to sullenness, unquote. This anonymous source also heard him rail against the sheriff as he took him out of the courtroom, saying, quote, Lord, thou knowest somebody's got hold of my sleeve. Strike them. Lord, strike them, unquote. This outburst brought signs and groans from the concourse as Davenport's followers began to cry out, beat their breasts, and be afflicted by strange physical agitations. The devotees attempted to prevent Davenport from being led out of the building, crying that the sheriffs were serving the devil. Later in one Later on in the evening, the city was set upon by a mob that, under this bizarre religious fervor, began to threaten the government and had to be dispersed. The next day, Davenport was brought before the bar and gave his testimony. He believed that he recently received information from above, that the things he said were true, that it is that a majority of the ministers of the land were undoubtedly unconverted, and he left back to Southwold, saying, quote, Though I must go, I hope Christ will not but tarry and carry on his work in this government in slight of all the power and malice of earth or hell, unquote. <clears throat> but the evidence presented by the king's attorney was too forceful to allow acquittal. Davenport was judged to be a madman mimicking sobriety as well as a corrupter of youth. He also endeavored to terrify and affect his hearers by assuring them that the end of the world was soon coming, this fact having, fact having been clearly opened to him. He was decried for being too quick to pronounce damnation against his opposers, for he was heard saying, quote, that he saw hell flames slashing in their faces and that they were now, now dropping down to hell, unquote. Davenport was judged as being too much under the influence of enthusiastical impressions and impulses which disturbed the rational faculties of the mind. 
These bizarre, bizarre proceedings were carried in all the major colonial newspapers, having been forwarded by individuals with anti-revivalist sentiments. The cities and all the colonies were abuzz with the accounts of Davenport, the details of his exploits having been given space on the front page of their newspapers. These various writers couched their accounts of Davenport in a conviction of the erroneous nature of his religious theology. But Davenport was not content to remain in Southwold and left to pre preach his message in the Massachusetts colony. He arrived in Charlestown on June 25th, frightening the local ministers who had read of his exploits in the papers. When he came to Boston on June 28th, the local association of ministers was in session, preparing for the chaos that Davenport would undoubtedly bring to the city. They sent two of their own to converse with him so as to fathom his intentions and returned back to Boston, believing that he would be unappeased. By July, accounts of his exploits were in the front page of the Boston Evening Post. In their July 5th declaration, addressed to the pastors of Boston and Connecticut, Davenport was deemed unsafe to the public of Boston and was not invited into any places of worship due to the, quote, errors and disorders, unquote, that he left in his wake. This declaration was signed by the leading ministers of, of Boston. The news of Davenport and his, and his disturbances was now known throughout the colonies and with those opposed to the revival, using this arch fanatic as an example of its, of its excesses. While those who were for the propagation of its ideals began distancing themselves from his actions, though still defending his intentions. The grand jury in Boston brought the case of Davenport before its judgment, indicting him for declaring many slanderous and reviling speeches against the respected ministers of the province. The jury charged Davenport with claiming that the ministers were carnal and unconverted men, that they knew nothing of Jesus Christ, and that they were leading the people blindfolded down to hell that they were destroying and murdering souls by the thousands. Davenport was also accused of drawing many of the faithful away from the houses of worship, a duty which was required by law. Twenty-three jurors were gathered, twenty-one of which sustained the indictment. Davenport was arrested and refused bail, preferring to wait until the trial. At the trial, he was declared non capos mentis, or insane, and was therefore not guilty. But Davenport was not through with his call to preach. With full confidence of his divine talents, he returned to Connecticut, where the people had called him to speak. His final outburst occurred the next year between March 2nd and 6th in New London. It was here that the bonfire took place and the ardent declarations of his parishioners' guilt were imperiously dictated. This upheaval ended Davenport's maniacal career, but his impact upon the nature of the Great Awakening would be felt in the reactions of those involved. Those that supported the new ideals of the Awakening began to distance themselves from the radicalism of Davenport, while those who opposed it saw in Davenport a clear example of the errors committed by the pro-revivalist preachers. Those who opposed the ideals of the Awakening were generally from the established ministries of New England. They rejected the tenets of the new creeds and saw uncontrolled accusation of the itinerants as a threat to their traditional religious values and to the peace of the colonies. The main critic opposed to the upheaval was in values was Charles Chauncey. He was the pastor at the First Boston Church and led the faculty of Harvard, two traditional rationalist enclaves. Both, institu both institutions were averse to the enthusiastic Great Awakening. Chauncey's religious beliefs and defense of Enlightenment ideals embodies the rational approach to the Great Awakening. Davenport had called upon Chauncey at his home in Boston in July 1742. The men squared off against one another, Davenport accusing Chauncey of being a carnal and unconverted minister while Chauncey accused him of being irresponsible for not tending to his own flock 
and for being, quote, under the influences of impulses and impressions, taking them for a call from God, unquote. Chauncey rebuked him for not being in his right mind, believing if God would give him a sober mind, he would truly be in anguish for his misdeeds. Davenport, humbled, according to Chauncey, was sent off with Chauncey's assurance, assurance that Davenport knew nothing of his personal relationship with God and to beware of passing judgment indiscriminately. It was due to this encounter and the bizarre actions of Davenport that seemed never to abate that Chauncey was inspired to write the seminal tract of the Awakening for which the opposers of the revival guarded their intellectual defenses. Enthusiasm described and cautioned against was spoken at his pulpit on July, in July of 1742, after the visit of Davenport to Boston, and the, the sermon was published the following year. It was penned in direct response to the itinerants. Chauncey wrote it in order to reject the manner and matter of Davenport's work. Disgusted by the visceral emotionalism of the revival, he gave reason the highest place in religious life as it enabled men to integrate all experiences into an orderly whole that aided an individual in his quest for perfection. Quote, but in nothing does the enthusiasm of these persons discover itself more than in the disregard that they express for the dictates of reason. They are above the force of argument, beyond conviction from a calm and sober address to their understanding." Unquote. The text served as a warning to the citizens of New England, being written like a manual for any individual, individual to detect and avoid those religious practices that smacked of Chauncey's operative word, enthusiasm. In Chauncey's mind, this word means any action taken by an individual that is not based on scripture or region, reason, but upon pretensions, pretensions to extraordinary spiritual insight. This tract is based upon many of the rational influences upon which the ministers of New England were trained. It clearly delineates the many detrimental assumptions of the revivalists, such as the stress given to the passions and affections. It also states that the men, enraptured with enthusiastic frenzy, should be handled sympathetically, for when they awoke to their errors, they would reap what they had sown. Chauncey had absorbed a part of the Puritan heritage which taught that God usually worked in orderly ways to prepare the individual for the presence of the Spirit. Revivalistic enthusiasm was repugnant to Chauncey as it stressed spiritual assurance as opposed to the means of grace provided by church ordinances. Revivalists contrasted faith and good works as opposites, while Chauncey defended his view that good works and orderly progress toward a more perfect understanding of scriptural truths were preferable to the vagaries and emotionalism of revival hysteria. Reason and order were more important to him than the unsettling results of a dis disproportionate stress on faith. Conversion, he thought, did not occur from any spontaneous action, but from, quote, the continuous work of a gracious God in drawing his creatures unto himself, unquote. A letter to George Wishart in Edinburgh, published on August 4, 1742, but probably penned earlier, came after Davenport's outburst in Connecticut. In the text printed in the English newspapers, Chauncey assessed his view of the revival anonymously. He wrote candidly to his English friend his opinions of the followers of the revival, saying, quote, their place, They place their religion so much in the heat and fervor of their passions that they too much neglect their reason and judgment. And instead of being more kind and gentle, more full of mercy and good fruits, they are more bitter, fierce, and implacable. Unquote. Chauncey believed that wherever the words of the revivalists were spoken, they were undoubtedly followed spiritually proud and conceited people who exhibited a very unchristian temperament. 
The awakening had spawned a new type of dogmatic religious thinker, one who was far too censorious to any who did not believe as he did. Chaos was the leaven of the itinerants, for only factionalism and social contention followed in their wake. He called Davenport, quote, the wildest enthusiast, unquote, he ever had seen, and was appalled that anyone would allow his excesses. Another enemy that da Davenport made was the Association of Pastors in the province of Massachusetts. They often met and adopted a strong anti-revivalist stance. At the first meeting after the beginning of the awakening, which took place on June 28, 1742, the Associated Pastors published an account of their meeting with Davenport in the Boston Evening Post. They assessed him as one stricken with sudden impulses in a man who misapplied the scriptures. He was described also as a disturber of the peace, especially after having come from the upheaval of Long Island and Connecticut. The pastors readily deemed the itinerant as one who was very dangerous to the interest of religion and did not invite Davenport into their houses of worship. A testimony was given against Davenport for, quote, all those disorders and profaneness which have been promoted by any who have lately gone forth to hear him, unquote. These pastors protested Davenport's devices, but desired to see the further propagation of the awakening in spite of the devices of Satan against it. The declaration was signed by many of New England's cultural elite, such as Joshua Gee, Benjamin Coleman, Thomas Prince, and Thomas Foxcroft. At the pastor's annual convention convened May 25, 1743, they, assessed, they addressed the chaotic state of religion in the colonies by giving their testimony against the recent abuses, notably Davenport's. They seemed to revert to Davenport when they wrote, quote, We observe that some in our land look upon what are called secret impulses of their minds, without due regard to the written word, the rule of their conduct, that none are converted, but such as know they are converted, and this assure, that this assurance is of the essence of saving faith. The Declaration goes on to say that individuals who assumed direct knowledge of the prerogatives of God had the ability to judge their fellow man were opposed to the spirit and precepts of the gospel and are not properly fit to call themselves disciples of Christ. This statement indicates that Davenport was on the minds of the pastors of Boston. The missive ends with an appeal to all the pastors in the countryside to avoid leaving for any extended religious itineration and to preserve the sanctity of the churches for the benefit of the next generation. These statements affirm the fact that the people of Boston were formulating their moral and legal defenses against any further intrusion of Davenport or his type. On July 7th, another convention was held and an even larger number of ministers arrived from the surrounding areas. Upwards of 90 pastors from Boston gathered to discuss the events of the preceding year. The minutes were recorded and a report on the present state of the American church was produced. The report discusses the nature of the revival, its sudden onset, and those who it affected. The treatise explains many of the actions of revivalist preachers as forgivable, but warns the proponents of the, quote, work, unquote, to beware and not be ignorant of Satan's devices. The last paragraph of the document lists the grievances the pastoral body has against the itinerants. It is not surprising that each one of these charges fit the description of Davenport. The document was signed by 68 of the ministers, 45 attested to it with a reservation, being that itineration was not fundamentally unsound. The actions of Davenport brought forth a public interchange of ideas about revivalism. This exchange of knowledge took place on the pages of local newspapers throughout New England. Many important views about the revival were placed on the front page of these newspapers and were digested, digested by the general public. 
Generally, views printed in the papers was biased against the Great Awakening. They condescend to the revivalists and seek to compare their disturbances to tumultuous religious disturbances of the old world. For example, in the Boston Evening Journal, an account of a European enthusiast by the name of Hackett was inserted. This man committed very inappropriate gestures, such as biting off a man's nose and uttering blasphemies before he was sent to the gallows. The story, published without any reference to an author, seems intended to serve as instruction to the public, who may not have heard of the many instances of enthusiastic fervor encountered in Europe. The populace, no doubt, sought out such extreme examples of revivalism for its satirical and humorous value. A large number of letters were printed in these newspapers, and most were definitely opposed to the ideals of the Great Awakening. The letters were placed in the paper to encourage a response from readers, or an extract was printed that was particularly interesting. A letter from Arthur Croswell to Thomas Prince was printed in May 30, 1943 edition of the Boston Evening Gazette. It was intended to reach a wide audience in the hopes of counteracting the influence of Davenport. In the letter, Parsons writes of his desire that the people of the colony would not depart from their respected pastors and wished his missive published to realize that goal. The letter contains statements that certifies the errancy of Davenport, and probably for that reason. Aside from the influence of the newspaper had in determining public sentiment, Davenport's encounters with the law were another means by which his teachings were contained. He had been declared insane by a jury twice, once by the Colonial Assembly in Connecticut, and a second time while in Boston. Largely due to Davenport's extreme behavior, a law was passed in Connecticut in 1742, restricting the movements of itinerants titled An Act for Regulating Abuses and Correcting Disorders in Ecclesiastical Affairs, it dictated that if any minister entered into a parish without the permission of the local minister, he could be fined 100 pounds and be arrested. This act severely impeded the itinerants, for after a number of them were arrested and fined, few dared challenge the authority of the court. Davenport obviously alienated many people during his religious career, but he placed his former allies in a particularly tenuous predicament. How could they possibly condone such craziness? Could they still salvage their reputations after having supported and encouraged Davenport? Was it possible to apologize for the arch-fanatic and still hold to the values of the Great Awakening? Each of the members in the revivalist camp responded to these questions differently with the intention of creating distance between their ideas and James Davenport's. Most of the blame was pointed at George Whitefield. In the, exorbit the exorbitance of Davenport occurred while Whitefield was in England and he used his geographical distance as an excuse to distance himself from the phrase, stating, quote, Now all is laid to me as being the primum mobile, though there was not so much as the appearance of anything of this nature when I left New England last, unquote. He defended the main themes of the revival, but condemned the irresponsibility of the itinerants that had followed in his path, namely Davenport. Gilbert Tennant, a man famous for his irresponsible rantings, came to see the error of his ways and repented, in a letter to Jonathan Dickinson of New Jersey, written after the recent declaration in Boston, Tennant lists a large number of errors for which Davenport should be held responsible. The accusations are almost identical to those pronounced by the Boston, Boston Assembly of Pastors. It is evident that Tennant tried to manipulate his person and image away from any tincture of enthusiasm when he wrote, quote, I never opposed anything, but what appeared to me on the most serious deliberation to be error, disorder, and enthusiasm and always endeavored to the utmost to improve these commotions and awakenings to the glory of God." Unquote. This statement is absurd, for Tennant had been one of the main proponents of the movement and used a chaotic, emotional, 
preaching style. This statement also shows that Tennant has changed his mind on the subject of the revival. His preachings were of the most disorderly type, full of contention and slandering. For him to reject his past must have been difficult, considering where he used to stand ideologically. But in a personal aside to Dickinson, Tennant admits to being in a distressing state of mind and is sick of the, the current dissensions that the Great Awakening caused. The answer to the conundrum Davenport presented to the revivalist was Jonathan Edwards' treatise, Thoughts on the Revival of Religion. The book was written as a response to the growing discontent arising from the conservative members of the New England ministry. Edwards wrote in part to explain away the impact of Davenport upon the revivalists. He saw that Davenport's actions had brought inertia and contention into the itinerancy, itinerancy movement. This was to be remedied by writing an all-inclusive book upon the subject. In the book, Edwards provides reasoning that hopefully would impel the revivalist movement forward to create the New Jerusalem on the American continent. He also explains away types such as Davenport as improperly based in scripture. Quote, many are guilty of not taking the Holy Scriptures as a sufficient and who rule whereby to judge his work. Unquote. History should be used to measure the present disturbances to decipher act which actions on the part of the revivalists were chaff and which were wheat. He describes in his book some of the major causes of disorder based on an error in belief. Edwards condemned the notions that immediate revelation, distance from scripture, was valid and that the certainty of God's approval could be known. Edwards disdained the idea that order in religious matters is of merit. The inability of the revivalists to discern genuine, genuine spiritual experiences, according to Edwards, has led the Great Awakening to the edge of the abyss. By the time of the diverse reactions to Davenport's fanaticism had gone to print and were widely disseminated through England, the career of the arch-fanatic was at its end. Accounts of him preaching to smaller crowds and his isolation from the pulpit led him to a renunciation of his earlier errors. He admitted publicly in a missive titled Confessions and Retractions that he had embraced the tenets of the revivalists with an unbalanced theological basis. When the missive was finally published in 1744, Davenport's influence was waning. Yet the repercussions from the years of 1740 to 1743 influenced the meaning of the Great Awakening in a manner that earlier revivalists had not anticipated. Davenport had ingested their ideas of an unconverted ministry and the nearness of hell. He was united with them in their ideology and shared their conviction that the Spirit of God must be felt to gain a knowledge of salvation. Davenport's connection to Whitefield, Tennant, and Edwards tarred their reputations, necessitating a reply from each of them. Davenport began his radical exertions at the beginning of the Great Awakening, this vague religious movement whose meaning was based upon action and not based upon a solidified ideological foundation. He brought to this theological spectrum a confrontational brand of religion that shattered the assumptions of current ministers and laymen alike. The citizens of the colonies had to personally decide the merits of James Davenport and his teachings. Should he be grouped with less obtrusive revivalists or be disregarded, disregarded as an uncontrollable rogue aberration? The bizarre and chaotic influence of his preaching could not be easily handled by New England ministers in the years the early years of the Great Awakening. Because of the upheaval he caused, the response was required from various members of the religi religious who community who in turn solidified the intellectual meaning of the epoch into a defined compendium of texts and letters for or against the revivalists. The ramifications of this vast array of literature on the subject of Davenport are considerable. A new view of religious practice was formulated in these widely disseminated tracts. 
A more individual approach to religion, bypassing the church and pastor, was far more amenable to the citizens. The resulting polarization of opinion, with Chauncey forwarding a rational view based upon practical interpretation of the spiritual life devoid of emotionalism, and Edwards' apologetic stance upon the validity of personal spiritual insight, created an edifice of definition about the nature of the revival. These opinions, published in books and written about in the newspapers of New England, spoken of from many of the pulpits of sundry churches and transcribed in many correspondences were responses to the fanaticism of James Davenport.